Melinda Barley joins me today on the Neil Wilkins podcast. Melinda is a seasoned serial entrepreneur who spent many, many years in Silicon Valley. And we're going to go there um, as a, an entrepreneur. We're going to go there. Um, and certainly now as a, a very dedicated uh, digital marketing and AI practitioner as part of many business interests. And we're going to go there too. So welcome to the show, Melinda. Thanks, Neil. It's great to be here. So with somebody like you coming onto the show, it's often it's quite it's quite hard to kind of figure out where should we start? Because we've said we're going to talk AI and we're going to talk kind of mindful AI. So really kind of AI in a considered way. But I guess to kind of tee that up, we need to begin with a bit of a backstory and find out really kind of why AI, what has brought you to be able to talk about AI, what has brought you to be impassioned about AI, and all the kind of opportunities that that brings. So let's kind of take a little bit of a backward step and and maybe a, a little bit of a a history trip into how Melinda kind of got to where she is today. Well, if we start when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but I don't think we have that much time. Uh, So I have always been someone interested in technology from the time I was in grade school, teaching myself to program in basic when my classwork was done. I grew up in a home where my parents encouraged that, encouraged the use of technology, and which is unusual. I'm in my 50s. And I grew up in a relatively rural part of the United States, so it was considered pretty unusual at that time. And you know, through various meandering ways that we don't have time for on this podcast, I found myself working in Silicon Valley. Uh, I worked. I started my career at eBay in 2002, 2003, right at their peak, and worked for PayPal. I've worked for a number of different, you know, high tech startups, and then I started my own. Uh, consulting firm because I realized that I enjoyed working on the client side. I was much happier almost advising than I was being an employee. All of this brings me to sort of what happened in the last year. Um, you know, I personally went through breast cancer treatment. I'm going to be fine. I always feel like when I when I say that, I have to reassure people <laughs> the end is not imminently near. And I had a lot of time to think, as one does in that experience, especially when it hits you at this stage in your life. It, it forces you to pause and reflect. I don't think you could be a sentient human being and not go through this and have that moment. And prior to that, I'd always been a self reflecting type of person. I was a bullet journal practitioner for a number of years. Uh, Maybe it's part of being an only child. You have a lot of time to think. And I saw what was coming. I certainly heard people talking about in the Valley, but not being an engineer, there wasn't much I could do until ChatGPT hit, which was basically right around the time I was coming out of treatment. And I went and I spoke with a number of my friends in the Valley. And there's the first lesson, which is sometimes it's just good to stop and listen for a while. It's I went on, you know, they they call it a listening tour. I went and just talked to people in the Valley that I hadn't seen in a while, pandemic, cancer, and heard them. And I heard almost universally that people were asking me, my former clients, the people I'd worked with in the Valley said, we need your practical sort of mind looking at this AI thing because it's going to blow up. It's it's becoming huge. There's a lot of hype around it, but you, you know us and we trust you. And so... I went, okay, (laughs) I learned a lot about cancer in a short amount of time. I think I can do this too. And I just dove in. It gave me something to focus on, which was wonderful. It really gave me focus and purpose and a chance. It was like being a kid again. It was like, you know, when the iPhone came out and it was the world is going to change. And I'm sure many people had that thought the first time they put a a question into chat GPT about something they know really well and watched it spit out pretty damn good prose. Uh, almost good enough pros and sort of had this aha moment of this is coming. I don't know exactly how. 
I don't know exactly how things will play out, but I know it's going to change the world again. And, and it might be the most significant development in my lifetime, except for the internet itself and the personal computer. I think it's it's on that realm of, of, of expertise. And with that, I will add that being a part of Gen X, as I think you might be too, um, we have seen four major technological revolutions in our lifetime. And we know what change looks like. And I've been astonished and happy that many of my compatriots feel the same way, that this is our time to lead. AI needs thoughtful. It needs thoughtful leadership. It needs experienced leadership to think through what the pros and cons are, how to be thoughtful about adopting it in the enterprise, how to be humane in the enterprise, how to be practical in the enterprise. And I think we're, we're, the, best, we're the generation best positioned to do it, I think. And I'm excited because in some ways, the last 10 or 15 years in the Valley have been very frustrating for me. I have not loved ad tech as a marketer. I have, as an analytics person, I have been frustrated. And it's great to see this wonderful technology come forward. And I will add, there's so much good about it too. As a cancer patient, I benefited. AI is already highly in use, at least here in the States in research, and it is paying off. It's showing things to researchers that they couldn't see before. So it, it is not, like any tool, it is neither friend nor foe. It is what we make of it. So. Hopefully that's a brief history of time. <laughs> wow, it is a history of time and, and and well done for just being so, I guess, positive, so pragmatic, so embracing of the changes obviously that you've been through in, you know, in recent times. I mean, you know, credit credit to you to come out of that with a almost a thirst and a hunger. It feels like the way you describe it, almost like as a rebirth. It feels like this is another opportunity to reinvent myself, to come back stronger, to come back giving and adding even more value. Is, is that kind of how it feels? Because that's what's come across to me. Well, it's where I ended up to be, you know, this, I know this podcast can handle this, but it's, it wasn't always like that. <laughs> I say I was not the model cancer patient you see on television. We're all, you know, shining, you know, glowing and wishing happiness upon everybody. No, it was terrible. Without a doubt, it was one of the most difficult experiences of my life. And I did not embrace it immediately. I was angry and frustrated and sorrowful and lost for many months. And it was in that ability to listen to people, to really hear them say, this is what this is what we need from you. This is what this is what you're uniquely good at. It gave me something to sort of hold on to and pull myself out of the, you know, of the mire and say, I can do this. I can learn about this. And I love to learn about new things. So I could also see its ability to transform my particular profession, which is marketing analytics. We desperately need this tool. It's not there yet. It's going to be a while, but I can see how it's going to make just my day-to-day -day life so much easier. So it's been fun too. It's fun to go back and in some ways it gave me the opportunity to learn. So this was hard one, if you will. <laughs> I didn't come out of the womb like this. You earn it one day at a time. Mm, and that kind of embracing of change because yeah, for you clearly, and I think for a lot of us, you know, certainly since COVID and, you know, obviously big economic challenges in many countries across the world right now. And I know a lot of people um, sort of listening and watching this podcast are in commercial kind of roles or their startups or their entrepreneurs. They're feeling the pressure right now. Again, we've had a, you know, a health pressure. We've had society pressure. We've got financial pressure. It feels like this embracing of change. Now we've got this AI pressure. 
which you know might sound an odd thing, but I think for a lot of people there's still fear. You know, I, I speak to a lot of people and they're kind of either trying to be in denial or they're putting their head in the sand saying, I hope it goes away. And I think you and I know it's not going to do that. Um, it's just too much opportunity behind it. Did you feel that having a, um, a mindset that embraces change is a really great starting point for this? Because then with that comes a thirst or an appetite for figuring it out, knowing it's not perfect, but just embracing that the, there could be something in this for me that's going to be even better on the other side. Do you, do you think it is a mindset thing with AI? Oh, I do think it is. And I think it has to be shown in some ways. Some, I, I'll, t I'll just give you an example. A very dear friend of mine who is a very accomplished content writer and editor. Very, She's in her 60s. And she she had basically had, like you said, her head in the sand. And I'm in my 60s. It's not going to affect me. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing until it's time to retire. And over a couple of glasses of wine, I said, my dear friend, we need you. In the same way my friend said to me, we need you on the front lines. Because if I am going to decide which of these many tools for writers a company should have, who better to tell me than the, one of the most expert writers and editors I know? So it's not that you will be replaced. It will be you with an AI tool. It will be the person who does embrace the tool that will be your competition, not the tool itself. And again, why not those of us who know what we're doing rather than the people who don't know what they're doing? So I, I will add to that that I grew up in an environment where as much as my parents embraced technology, they were blue collar workers. So it makes it sound like, you know, my parents were engineers. No, my father was an auto uh, worker. He worked on the line at Chrysler plant. And my mother was a nurse in a nursing home, changing bedpans and walking the floor. And I grew up worried about losing your job. Technology, my stepfather worked on the robots at Chrysler. So, you know, that was replacing jobs already then. And so my whole career has been sort of running away from automation or figuring out the path that where I am likely to continue adding value, where I'm not likely to be replaced by a machine. So to me, this is it, you either embrace it or you get into trouble. I saw so many people of my generation not. And then when, when it came and their jobs were automated, they're in their 50s and then they can't find work. And unlike the UK and in Europe, we just don't have the same social safety net for those folks. And, it, and it was, it's troublesome to watch. And so it's a bit of, there is a bit of fear, the fear of what happens if I don't. You can say what happens if I do, but I think we rarely stop to pause and consider the impacts of not making the decision, of not trying. And I'm too young to retire. So <laughs> there's that's the the Midwestern farmer in me says the the farm the the barn is burned down, but the cows still have to find a place to sleep. We have to be practical, and we still have to get the work done, even when we feel, you know, uh, fear, anxiety. You know, as the saying goes, that courage is not the absence of fear. It is, you know, it's embracing the action that comes out of it and feeling it anyway. Mm. And and I love that kind of example you give of, you know, at our kind of age, you know, we have seen various cycles come and go. We have seen, you know, dot com bursting and, and everything else that's kind of happened over the years. And there is kind of with that is almost like a, um, a responsibility to say, look, we've kind so. of been here before. We might call it AI now, but it's nothing new. It's just another moment it's just another change I say just I'm kind of doing it down and it is incredible let's not let's not um, sort of hide that fact but it is just another change 
And, and so with the right kind of mindset, it's almost like you're never too old. You never, and I don't think you're going to be retiring anytime soon, by the way you're talking. I would like to um, play bridge full time, by the way. So, Oh, oh so, so there, is a, there is a desire some <laughs> yes, point exactly. in the future doing it. Yes, oh, okay, just so I enough. can play bridge full time. That's all. <laughs> fair enough. Against the AI, yeah, of course, yes. which it will be at that point, yeah. So, so if, if somebody's kind of listening to this then and they're thinking, okay, I get this. I know I need to adopt. I know I need to adapt. And I know I need to embrace this thing. I'm responsible. I'm either C-suite um, or I'm a business owner. And I've got a team of people around me. I need to kind of think about this more than just purely switching on GPT-4 and saying, hey, you know, write Good me luck. this content, which is, of course, where everybody starts is where we're all going. But if somebody wants to do this more strategically, what are the kind of either thought processes they need to go through? Where do they kind of begin to think about integrating this into their plans? Let's assume it's not a startup. So let's assume it's an established organization, small, medium, or large. And they're thinking, or the owner or the C-suite are thinking, I need to kind of get my head around what this is when it's going to arrive, how it's going to begin to affect or impact on my strategy. So not the day-to-day -day tactics, just the strategy. Where do they begin that kind of process? Uh, at the beginning. So, uh, but seriously, it is, not, it is a strategic exercise. I think you framed it really well, Neil, which is to start to think about, and I think it does differ small, medium, and large. So let me back up for a moment, at least at this exact moment. Because many of the ways that AI will, will change an organization are not there yet. Small, med small, medium businesses, it's not quite time yet in the sense that if you wanted to create a custom application, unless you have engineering talent, it's going to be very expensive. It's very hard to find experienced AI ML practitioners and the volatility in, there's a whole difference in the pricing cycle because in, it used to be with technology, we built something and then we sold it a million times. But what's happening right now, and I, I, this is not forever, but in the very near term, it's the price of something is now is very volatile because it's the cost of computing. It's very expensive computationally to do AI. And so the access, you sometimes hear it called iron, the price of iron or cloud computing, that is a factor in a custom applications. I believe that for the most part at the moment, ask me again in a year, ask me again in 18 months, many of that is out of reach of small, medium businesses. That doesn't mean you can't use writer.com or ChatGPT or any of the other things that are out there. But in some ways you have time, you have, a, you have some time. Like you're, my fear when, I, when this hit in November and I was talking to my friends in January, I said, oh, I'm too late. And they looked at me, they said, are you kidding? Like you're just on time. There was nothing you could do as a non-engineer until January or November. There was no way to interface with it. So while it's coming, I think we there is time to be practical and thoughtful. And I think right now, a lot of the focus in company will understandably be on cost savings. All technology, that's the first thing that happens is how are we going to take cost out of the equation? But the real opportunity is where is the revenue? Where can there be new upside for the business? And I think that's worth thinking about. I ran my company up until the point I had cancer. I was a seven-figure marketing agency. A lot of what we did was content. And I think that's going to be a very challenging business to think about. Exactly how? How many people do we need? If What are our governance structures? How do we want people to use that? So if you're in that business, you might think about that. I think 
you always have to think about the legal side of it. You have to protect your, so I, I would start there. I would start with maybe thinking about some of the key processes or flows that are in the business that have the most opportunity, either on the cost side in terms of reducing cost or on the revenue side. And if along with that is a, is a starting governance plan, a simple sort of, you could call it a manifesto, you could call it a vision, an AI vision, but it is guidance. The team is looking for your guidance as a leader. What they're looking in the way children look to you when a child falls down in the street and they look up at mom and say, should I cry? Like, is this a thing? They're looking to us and we are the grownups now. We in Gen X hate admitting this. We've always been the sort of middle child, but we are the ones in charge now and we have to tell them how we want this to be. We can work with them, we can take their input, but they're looking to us to make that vision. So I, if you're a small, medium business, I don't think it's running around you know, being panicked. I think you, there is time to be mindful and thoughtful about this. If you are a large company, chances are you've been doing this for a long time. You know, that's That was a big learning for me as I started to get into this was, wow, how long many of the largest companies in the world have been light years ahead of us. They are using AI and ML in making decisions about where rest, you know, chain restaurants will go, or where, uh, you know, as I mentioned in healthcare procurement logistics, like it's it's already there. It's not new um, in that regard. So I think I think it's there. There is time. There is time, and I think it's about starting to think about what are the specific outcomes you want. Like everything else, begin with the end in mind. What is it we're trying to accomplish, and then work into that. Mm. I'm interested in your your take on this. I'm I'm doing some work, uh, not specifically within AI, but within kind of sustainability um, sort of sectors at the moment in terms of you know carbon footprint and how to reduce impact on planet, etc. And one of the things um, that I've come up with with colleagues um, is this new kind of, I guess you could call it new marketing mix rather than encouraging consumption. It's all about looking at a new four Ps: so product, people process and profit and just with the way you were describing that kind of initial starting point with a business decision maker I'm guessing and I'd be really interested in your view on this one if we were to take product people process or profit mm -hmm. one of those could be the starting point couldn't it is if there's a particular pain point so culturally the organization needs to focus on its people AI, is there a solution? Product, we need to innovate faster or we need to co-create the innovation or maybe we even need to pivot. AI could be a solution. Process, to me, that's an absolute obvious one. We need to be more efficient. We need to strip out the wastage in the business. Profit one, if we want to become a circular business rather than just encouraging you know, repeat sales, we can actually be a little bit more savvy and maybe there's a subscription model. Do you, do you see that maybe in that kind of mix, if you like, or in that kind of jigsaw puzzle of options, in therein lies could be some of the practicality of where you begin. Because I want to make this as kind of practical a conversation for others kind of taking away from this as possible. Do you think there's something in there? Just it kind of just jumped into my mind when you were describing, you know, the various kind of sectors that could benefit from this. I just wondered if there's various parts of the marketing mix that could also, you know, stimulate those ideas. Absolutely. I think we're all, if you're a consultant like I am, we all have our own frameworks and processes. And I don't think it's necessarily, here's the framework you should use. Your framework sounds fantastic. I have my own framework. I think that's the point of strategy is we have a plan. We stop and we, we, 
and that maybe we, and I would say we add into that, how often will we evaluate this? So, because as many people have said, this is the worst version of AI we will ever see. Whatever you're using today is the worst version and it is come and it's going to accelerate. It will not be a linear transition. It won't be like the iPhone and every year you get an iPhone and it's got better technology. This is going to be monthly. There's going to be something new coming. And so I think it's, it's when you, whatever framework you're working with, I would build in time to stop and reevaluate and say, are, you know, lift our heads and say, are we still on the right path? Are we still, has some, anything changed without being ooh shiny? Because if there's too much of that, then nothing gets done. So I, within that, we had a, a saying back in the day at eBay that I think would fit this, which is we are very articulate about what we don't do. So we are not going to focus on, for example, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say people, that sounds bad, but maybe we decide that maybe we are a mature organization. Our processes are pretty set and changing them would require a lot, you know, 100,000 people to change. That's a lot. Maybe we want to wait until some of the volatility has settled down before we do that. But, oh, look, we could make our call center 10% more efficient or 20% more efficient. We, while at this, this is the thing I'm loving about AI is it an, if it's done right, it can enable us to do both. So we can be more efficient and we can serve our customers better. I love the healthcare analogy the, or the healthcare stories about the AI is now doing the work of, it is more effective at diagnosing breast cancer on uh, ultrasound than three radiologists. If I can sort of pause for a moment, when a woman is suspected of having breast cancer, let's say she gets her mammogram and they find a spot, the next thing that they do is an ultrasound. And that ultrasound is very hard to read. It requires a lot of experience. It turns out these are very specialized technicians and often the radiologists rely on them. It's that specialized, but it's also very fuzzy. And so AI is doing an incredible job at amassing all of these images and then knowing which ones were actually cancer, being able to more definitively say, so what's happening? Fewer women are having to get biopsies. There's, that's amazing because a woman shouldn't have to go through having a biopsy. She doesn't need one. But think about the impact on the healthcare system in the, in the NHS or in the United States. That's less traffic. That means the women that need the biopsy can get it faster. And so do you see, like, it's, there, are, there are things that can go with it. And I think being thoughtful is where, where you want to go. Mm, that just, yeah, just that, that, that single example, I think a lot of people who are a little more creative with their strategies would jump on that and say, okay, we have our equivalent either in the organization or within our supply chain, or we could see that as a commercial opportunity, our, our equivalent of that, because it isn't something any of us are doing right now. So it kind of, it throws up these little moments where you think, We've never looked at it like that before. We have the capability of doing that. Could we turn that capability into a competitive competence whereby actually we can see a commercial gain? Because I'm, I'm guessing one of the big filters here, and I love the thing about don't chase the, I'm paraphrasing you mm. in Linda, but don't chase the shiny, the shiny thing. <laughs> yeah, because there's always, there's always that temptation, isn't there? We all do it. Um, but if you don't do that, but you spot an opportunity that is potentially going to give you a real commercial advantage, that has got to be the thing then that gets the most traction, hasn't it? It is. And and then you'll have to be patient sometimes because you may hit on that idea and then realize, oh, oh no, the technology isn't there for me yet. I can't, I can't afford it yet. I can't I can't find the talent to do it. That's okay. 
it's like, it'll come very, very quickly. And you'll be ahead of your competition when you know, you can start, you can start to look for that person. It may take you a year to find them, it, but you're gonna be a far ahead of the competition that are going to try to ignore this and not doing the thinking. But I, I, isn't it fascinating that in the past, we've always talked about technology as automation, how it's gonna replace people, how it's gonna make things more efficient. But this is one of the, in the same way that the iPhone, look at what it enables for the disabled. I'm just thinking of Apple's recent commercial about you know, how all of its um, assistive features for people and thinking it's not a net negative. And so what if it could be both? It's really exciting time. Mm. It, it is really exciting. And I think, you know, anybody listening and, and trying to figure out, okay, I get the process. I know what I've got to do now. We've got a meeting next week. We're going to plan this thing out. Okay, I want to bring this kind of idea and this kind of mindset, I guess, into the meeting, which is it's opportunity. It could be automation, but it could also be a whole different way that we do business and we can use AI to critique it, to measure it. I just want to come back into the the whole kind of data piece, because, you know, you're very much about sort of data analysis and I guess kind of evidence based stuff. Let's just call, just call it stuff because, it, you know, mm -hmm. it's very broad when you start talking data. Where, where do you see the, the kind of the big advantages maybe over the next six to 12 months coming through from the whole kind of data piece? I mean, when, when you talk about some sort of um, um, analysis and evaluation, where, where do you see the most kind of traction happening? Because I can see ultimately this being the big big thing for ai in the next kind of five six years is we will see you know the potential for evaluating stuff we didn't even realize existed before i mean where, where do you see the quick wins coming from in that whole kind of data analysis interpretation evaluation kind of formula we have another saying in the valley that sends that says we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term and underestimate the impact in the long term so in the short term, I think it's tougher. And the reason it's tougher is because what has not been solved is the privacy and governance issue. So if I am, and some of the most uh, important gains a company can get is going to be from its own data. And that means, do you trust the company that you're giving all of that data to, to run the analysis, since we're not yet at a place where every company can have its own in-house model yet? And so there are companies in the Valley that specialize in this and they're building out models for healthcare. They're building out models for highly regulated industries like financial services and so on. And the idea is that those companies can take that model in house, but it's not there yet for small business. So I think that's the first question that has to be solved. It's getting there. It's clear that, you know, ChatGPT almost immediately responded to those concerns and put breaks on in the AI. It's a question, do you trust them or not? Um, I would not at the moment just dump and, and I think any governance policy should be very clear. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't want it published on the front page of a newspaper, it probably shouldn't go into ChatGPT. It is not private. And there have been instances where people have uploaded things and it's leaked out in other responses. So you have to be very careful. If you're a consultant, you're under NDA, you really, this is important. But at the same time, um, I think it's it's about you have you know thinking through what's got what's got to come. And can I ask you to repeat your question again? <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. about that, and then I oh data data short term. And long -term. Yeah, it was it was, it was kind of the short term. Okay, sort so of the, the short term is value. tougher. Yeah, it's tougher because of the privacy issue. And then mm. if you think through the biggest problem in data, I always say data problems are people problems. It's almost never the data. We're at least in in Silicon Valley, we're drowning in data, more data than we can possibly make sense of. 
And so it comes down often, you know, I've been doing this for close to 20 years now. And as my career has gone on, it's less about is Google Analytics installed correctly? And does the C-suite agree on what a conversion is? And often they don't. And what does that involve? Well, pride and shame and fear and accountability. And all of those things are often what stand in the way of data adoption. We had a, we had a client who was on the verge of an IPO, had went gangbusters during the, the pandemic. All of a sudden, the business started falling off. And the reason was not a happy one, which is they had a, what we call a leaky bathtub problem. They had these problems before the pandemic. There were product issues, like long-term, like product market fit issues, sales channel issues. And the pandemic sort of exacerbated the need for their product. So it was hidden. But then as the need receded and the water started draining faster and faster, we came in, did the analysis, and the CEO just could not hear it. He was watching his fortune slip through his hands and he couldn't hear it. I felt for him as a founder. I can't imagine being that close to the brass ring and then watching it fade away. It's got to be terrible. And But that's a human thing. That's not a data thing. And I don't sit in judgment of him because we are all, if the more you know about cognitive bias, the more you know that, that we are flawed, buggy wetware, as we say. These are biases that are built into us through millennia. They are not easily overcome. And so the biggest challenge will often be this, this accountability. This is the single biggest thing I see in terms of standing in the way of data adoption. It's not the data, it's the people. So, mm. so in the short term, I think it's a governance issue. In the long run, I think the same challenges will always be there. I think it will get easier, which is great. Great analysts will not spend their days compiling data into spreadsheets. We will look back on those days the way we look back on people doing surgery without anesthesia. How did we do that? Like now people can spend their time thinking about what data means and what should we do with it rather than cleaning it, extracting it, matching up the addresses that don't fit and all of the, you know, the silos are in two different, have two different points of view. One silo is using this tool and the silo is using another tool. No, that, that part will start to go away. And so I think, again, it comes down to people. I'm sure you would say the same thing since you talked about mindfulness and and as much as we like to think we take emotion out of our life at work, that is simply not true. Functional fMRI studies show that human beings cannot make decisions without emotions. And so mm. the Spock fantasy, as I call it, is just that. There is no such thing as a perfectly rational human being. And so we, by not accounting for that, we set ourselves up for failure. AI can help a lot, but in the end, it's the humans that are gonna have to make the decisions. So if we take then the AI, then the way you're defining then almost is it's the tool. So it's it's not the end game unless, of course, we decide to you know, develop new apps, et cetera, et cetera. Then it might be the end game. But let's assume that it is just part of a, a process or a, a stack of technologies that allow us to do certain things in different ways going forward. This whole idea of kind of bias then, I mean, there could be C-suite bias in terms of, oh, it's technology that we either we need or we don't need. Of course, either decision then has an impact. Um, there could be a bias in terms of how we then cascade that need or that brief down into the organization to actually tactically make things happen on the ground. So there could be the bias or, you know, a prerequisite to do things in a certain way because we've always done it in this way even though ai might be sort of different to the way we've run the business before we're still going to apply the old model how do we kind of accommodate this this human or humanity kind of thing within it because 
surely in, in a perfect world to take the Spock analogy there, wouldn't we just let the AI get on with it? Because it's going to do it in a much more objective way without our intrusion, isn't it? Well, very quickly, discussions about AI end up in this, what is the value of humanity? Very you see how like what was how long has it been? Thirty seven minutes. Yeah, it we got there, you know. <laughs> And I I have decided this is a personal choice not to go there. I have decided that going there will put me away from actually doing what could be done today. Um, and that doesn't mean we willy nilly sort of you know Oppenheimer our way you know just throw it out there and hope for the best. No, I don't think that works either. But at the same time, I'm not convinced that it, that 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 moment is so close that we need to have that conversation. It's sort of I'm going to kick the can down a little bit and say we will we will get there when we get there. But for now, it's time to start moving in that direction. I would say to myself as a CEO and any other CEOs out there, you know, it's it's we have the future in our hands and it's going to be up to us. We have to decide, but I forget the writer that talks about how the, the, the technology will change us as much as the thing we invent changes us. Look at what the internet has done. The internet has changed us. It is changing attention spans. It's changing points of view and morals and ethics for better or worse, you know, depending on your point of view, I guess. And so I think it comes down to having a clear sort of moral compass, if you will, not necessarily religiously, but, what do I, what's important to me? What are my boundaries and values? This is back to mindfulness and being self-aware. And I think all leaders should be in a position to do that. They should have the mental health resources that they need to be aware of their own biases and their own fears so that they can try to at least navigate around them and be aware of them. Because if you think you're not biased, that's when you're the most dangerous, I think, in many cases that that arrogance of, and it is, it is a form of arrogance, I'm not necessarily conscientious arrogance, but it is a form of arrogance or overconfidence to think that you are not, you are, you are Spock, you are perfectly rational, and everyone else is emotional. It's simply not true. And it puts you more at risk to make a wrong decision than the person who says, hmm, maybe I could be wrong. I love that honesty. That is, that's the truth, people listening to this. You know, it really is. Melinda is talking the truth and it is, it is so right. And there's so much research to back up what you're saying, Melinda. I mean, it's, it is something that I guess we all as humans almost deny that, you know, actually, how could I possibly be wrong? I'm doing things with great intention. You know, I show gratitude over things. I, I respect people. So I'm unbiased. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. And I'm not yeah. either. No. And I mean, nobody is. I, I say this, I don't say this as though I have solved this problem. You, I, I, somebody said to me recently, you can't read the label from inside the jar. Ooh. I've been thinking about that. It's really hard. It's really hard. And so this, again, I would say CEOs asking for perspective, this listening piece. If you're not sure, it's time to listen. Mm. Does, does that play out then if... if Say, say we move out of the C-suite for a minute and somebody more junior is listening to this, you know, they, they might be either in a management role or they might be very, very junior, but they've spotted an opportunity. They've been playing, they've been researching, they've been listening, and nobody else in the organization necessarily is, but they feel there's an opportunity here. How best do you feel it would be in terms of their journey of maybe introducing it as an idea, um, maybe gathering the evidence or gathering something that's going to back up their story so that they can begin to introduce this in as an opportunity. 
how best should they start to do this? Because AI could be quite a different beast to work with. This might not just be, hey, here's some customer feedback. This is what we need to do for a new product, which is kind of a well-prudent traditional way of doing things in business. But if this was an AI opportunity that was spotted with the great unknown at the management level where they think, oh, it's coming, but we've kind of avoided it so far. If we don't listen, it might not be there. How would somebody more junior bring this into the conversation maybe? Well, very carefully, as the old saying goes, right? It one bite at a time when it comes to eating an elephant. I remember being sort of driven in my 20s to drive for change. I think that is part of the power of youth. That is that is their that is what they bring to the table. And then as we get older, we it gets tougher. And so there will always be a tension. If you're a young person, I speak to you as the young person I can remember being, there will always be a tension between change and not change, if you will. And so it comes down to trust as always. Do they trust you? Are you working in not just your own best interest, but your manager's best interest? So thinking through like, how does this help my manager? When you pick a pilot project, what's the one that's going to get your manager promoted? We can talk about how we feel about that, but this is a reality. I often say like, I'm not saying this as though this is the right way, but it is. It's just what I know to be true, which is how do you frame it in someone's best interest? Because we humans are very, very skilled at determining when something's being pre presented to us that is in the presenter's best interest and not our own. And so finding out I often ask my clients, what are you on the hook for? Not what's best for the business, but what are you personally being held accountable for? If you're being held accountable for X, then focus on that. Change is very hard to drive in an organization. And it's not because us older people are stupid or because, well, not always, sometimes we are, but not always because we're stupid or because we don't like change, but because we have seen what can happen and we have experience to add to that discussion. So I think if a young person comes at it as I'm right and you were wrong, like any human interaction, it's not going to go well. I would also encourage any young person who, is, this sounds familiar, feels like they're Cassandra inside of an organization to, to scope it down and look for the sort of minimum viable product. What is the cheapest, easiest way you can get some time and some money to test something? The word pilot is very powerful. I would like to pilot this. I would like to test this and scope it way down and make it very unscary. All you're trying to do is have the conversation and think think of it as one thing at a time. And if the pilot is, I have never seen an organization where if the pilot was successful that they said, I'll oh, forget it. Like, no, if it's successful, the next thing will happen. And so slow down and be patient is really, and it's easy to say, you know, they say on the farm, you know, can't put old head on young shoulders. It's hard to be patient when you're young. You want change and you want it now, but you will you will bash your career on the rocks of something like this if you push too hard too fast. And so it's, and if you don't like the pace at which your organization is adopting, you should go because you will be unhappy. And you wanna go where the where your pace matches another. My, my significant other works in a very, very large company. Things take years to ship. He is very patient. He's very comfortable in that environment. It would drive me crazy. So, and he is more risk averse and he would not like the pace of some of the small startups I work with. That constant pace of change would disturb him. So I think it's finding an organization that whose pace and whose approach matches yours. See the opportunity. You can either be patient and go slow. You can go faster. There are risks that go with going faster too. So 
Mm. I don't know if that when, answers when the it, question, but carefully is the response. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it does. And I think, again, it makes me just think about this whole thing about constant listening then as part of doing that patience piece. Because, you know, if, if you pitch something in and you're being patient and you do it in a culturally sensitive way or a way that, you know, the way that it is in the best interest of the organization or the person receiving it. So all of that, I mean, that's great practice, great, great advice. And then if you're then having to then step back and just kind of wait a little bit with something like AI, if this is an AI initiative that you're putting out there, it's not going to be too long, though, is it, before you're going to hear the next iteration or the next version or something even better comes into the mix. So there is this kind of, yeah, I need to be patient, but actually it's not going to be for too long just because the nature of the beast is that it is changing so fast. So, so do you advocate um, kind of constantly reviewing then this thing? It feels like you just, once you open this box, you have to be constantly watching it to just be aware of how it's moving, how it's morphing, and how things might evolve in your favor, I guess. Yes, yes and no. I mean, it depends on what area you're in. I think right now, if you're in anything generative, your, your world has been turned upside down. Art, music, writing, code, uh, it's, oh, wow, <laughs> there's a lot coming. If, you, if you're not there, if you're in some er other area, especially if you're in a large organization, go towards where it is. So in this gigantic organization, maybe you are a person who's comfortable with a slower pace of change, but over in this organization, this other organization, they're piloting. Well, maybe vector towards that. See what skills you need. Think about a transfer, like get... I call it getting closer. You want to get, you may not do it in one jump. You may have to do sort of several moves, but start vectoring towards where, where, where you want to be. This is back to sort of mindfulness and self-reflection. This is why I've been such a proponent of, of, you know, things like bullet journal and so on is that if it, it's, it forces us or it gives us the opportunity to sit down and reflect on whether the actions we're taking are consistent with our purpose, whatever that purpose is, which, which can evolve. But are the actions we're taking, is the world we're living in, are the things we're doing consistent? With Because if they're not, we will we can be productive, but towards the wrong things. And so if, I think all of us have reached a point where like, oh, man, I worked like crazy. And then I got there and was like, whoa, wait a minute. That wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And so change for its own sake isn't always good. And so I think it comes back to sort of being very thoughtful and in partnership. Find a, Don't do it alone either. I think having working with people on this is really the way to go, whether it's finding a manager or a leader or having a colleague in another part of the org or networking. I don't think it has to be a daily obsession like it is for some of us. Um, I think you and that's that will keep you from doing the whole, the whole shiny problem is you can kind of check back in. You've got a general vector you're heading towards, and maybe you check back in a couple every couple of weeks or you know once a month to see if anything's happened, or find a couple of good sources to follow that say like this is what you should be paying attention to right now because a lot there's a lot of heat around this, a lot of heat, obviously, but it's not all you know action. It's just heat. It doesn't have to affect what you do, and that's the power of mindfulness and sort of being aware is. You can sort of sit there and let things swirl around you, but then decide what matters and come from there. Mm. This is just really wise, sage advice and guidance from somebody who has literally been there, seen it, and is continuing to do it. It's really, really interesting stuff, Melinda. Thank you so much. And I, I want to guide people in your direction because, you know, you publish a lot. You've got a podcast. You do a whole bunch of different things. And 
I just want to keep people connected with the work that you're doing. And as you then release, you know, really good new stuff. And if somebody is actually looking to, you know, get the kind of support that you're offering right now, how best should they connect with you? Well, I have a sub stack where I've been learning out loud. That was the first decision I made in January was I'm going to blog about this because I'm not an engineer and I'm just, there's a lot of people like me out there who've been marketing for many years and are just trying to make sense of it all. So I have a sub stack. It's called Let's Get Real. And we'll put the link in the show notes, um, melindabyerly.substack.com. And I have had for the last few years, a podcast on the history of Silicon Valley. It's an oral history. It's long form. One of the benefits of just sitting here in the valley for 20 years is that I get I hear these stories from people and I think, why doesn't everybody know this story? Why doesn't how did we get here? I'm very fascinated because I don't think that how we got here is not a it's not a surprise. It's not a mutation. It's an evolution. And the seeds of where we are now were planted many years ago. Some of them I have witnessed. Some of them I was there to see them planted. Some were planted before I got here. But there is, and the more I find I know about how we got here, the more I'm able to understand about what's coming. Back to the, what I said about being afraid of automation and sort of like ear to the ground and like what's coming. Um, that's something I've tried to do. And so uh, I, I, I love to have people come and listen. And I think young people too are missing that. They don't get to hear from, and they don't understand how we got here, why things are the way they are. Well, come and come and hear. And then lastly, I, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. That's where I post a lot of stuff professionally. It's a great place to connect and and let me know if there's anything I can do. I think we're all in this together. We're figuring it out together, but we have to engage. I, I will come back and say we and Gen X have a special responsibility to engage because we are now leading the world through this transition. We are best suited to do it and we will do it. So let's let's figure it out together. Gen X is we're finally coming into our own. It's kind of an exciting time. It was a long time coming, but we got there, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the boomers are like, peace out. I, I've done. I don't need any more of this. And I do feel that many Gen Xers, or sorry, millennials and Gen Z have never seen this. Millennials were born into the world we live in, Gen Z even more so. And so they've never lived through the transformation that's coming. And so I feel a responsibility now to help. And I hope that my other Gen Xers and even millennials, anybody who feels that feels the same is going to, we're going to work together and make this a net good um, for the world. Mm, it's Because cool, if we don't, right somebody will. If somebody we don't, will, yeah. And the people we, if the people we don't want to do it, unfortunately, will do it if we don't. So I want all good people to be involved in what's coming next. Mm. So let's connect. Make sure you do connect and follow Melinda, uh, particularly on LinkedIn. But um, as we say in the show notes below, we will have uh, all of the links so that you can keep in touch. You can watch. You can uh, enjoy this evolving journey uh, together with Melinda. And uh, thank you so much for that kind of really, really kind of mindful insight into AI, because, you know, this has been very different, I think, to a lot of the episodes that I've been covering, you know, on this topic over the last kind of 12 months. We've, uh, you know, increased the pace of it as AI has increased. But uh, this has been a very different spin and it's been yeah, very mindful. It's very uh, kind of feels quite zen, but it feels exciting at the same time. So uh, I think we've hit the spot with this one. So I'm very, very grateful to you. I'm glad I could be helpful to you and your audience. Neil. It was a delight to talk to you. It's been great. Thank you.